Let's be honest. We've got a choice to make. Our way or God's way. It's like Peter said, add to your faith goodness. And onward and upward it goes to a lifestyle of godliness and love. So, take that path. Walk it. Live it. Because the change we need is what the world needs to see. Good like God. Hello, everybody. I want to welcome you to the service here. Welcome to everybody who's watching online. We're kicking off a brand new sermon series, Good Like God. And kind of a theme verse, especially for this first service, is Psalm 34, verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. As we were planning for this service, somebody asked in that meeting, are people going to be able to make the connection between the snacks that we have after service and this theme? I hope so. <laughs> For those of you who are in person, you're going to get to enjoy a treat after the service. I am told by my daughter that we have Mexican candy, all kinds of Mexican candy, good stuff, Jolly Ranchers, Warheads, I don't know about that, tons of mini chocolates and more. And if you're watching online, hey, you might have to go get dessert out of the fridge or, you know, ahead and get a, an ice cream or something like that. But we want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. And this is really the second series in a topic that we delved into a little over a year ago now in a series called Let's Be Clear. And Let's Be Clear had uh, some subtitles, Wolves, Sheep, and serpents. And then the tagline for that series was uncovering God's heart for the wounded and vulnerable. The abuse of power is real. It's time for the whole church to take a stand. And we have not forgotten that. We want to continue to be the kind of church that takes a stand for goodness. People need to see goodness in the body of Christ. And so this series is Good Like God, and the subtitle is The Change We Need and What the World Needs to See. The world needs to see that our God is good, and they will see that God is good before they see it in any other way, probably, through the people of God, through his church. And that means godly leadership needs to reflect the goodness of God. We expect that of leaders. We expect it of the community as a whole. We expect that of every individual. But we should especially expect that God's goodness can be seen in the leaders of his church. Amen? Amen. Amen. But we've got problems, folks. And my preaching a series on this a few months ago didn't do away with all the problems in the family of God. Maybe they didn't hear my sermon. I don't know. Probably not. You know, I don't have that kind of influence. But we continue to see headlines that let us know of the significant failures of leaders in the body of Christ today. In fact, just before this service, I received an email, and it was a link to a news story of a leader who I have respected, under whose teaching I have sat on occasion, whose curriculum I have taught. I mean, it is disconcerting. It is 
something that just troubles me in so many ways. It's, it's so disheartening in so many ways. But I, I've gotten to a point where, unfortunately, I'm no longer surprised. I'm surprised, but then I'm not surprised. And folks, you know, we should not be surprised that there are leaders in the family of God who fail. We should not be so surprised that that would cause us to turn from God. We should not be so surprised that it would cause us to turn from the family of God. Unfortunately, that happens far too often. But even in the Bible, we see indications that there's an expectation that some leaders are going to fall. The majority won't, but some will. And we should not let that rock our world too much. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is saying his farewell to the elders in the church of Ephesus. And he knows he's never going to see them again. In other words, he is giving him, giving them rather, his very last will and testament in some, some respects. We don't know how soon after this Paul loses his life, but we know that this is the last time that he is speaking to these elders, and they know it, he knows it, and you can, you can count on the fact that Paul, knowing that, is going to share with them what is most important in terms of passing on to the leaders of the church at Ephesus this sense of responsibility and this sense of the, the need, the mandate to reflect the goodness of God. But he says in his farewell, he flat out declares, some of you are going to become problematic leaders. Some of you are going to become wolves. You're not going to be shepherds of God's flock. You're going to be wolves picking off God's flock. Man, Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30. We're going to look at the broader passage, but look at what Paul is, is dealing with, what he's declaring is going to happen. He says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock, even from your own number. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. A lot of times we think, well, if only we could do this, that, or the other, we could guarantee that no leader would ever fail. We could guarantee that there would be no corrupt leaders in the, in the family of God. Think about this. These are people who had the best discipleship program that you could ever imagine. Three years with the Apostle Paul. I mean, might, might not be quite as good as the discipleship program of the original apostles who spent three years with Jesus, but these Ephesian elders had three years with the apostle Paul, teaching them day and night, reaching out to them, sharing the word of God. But even with that, some of them are going to fall. We know that. Now, knowing that, not allowing the knowledge of that to keep us from staying with the Lord. In other words, instead of letting failures throw us off course, we should expect this is going to happen. But, and this is a big but here, we should not accept it as appropriate for any leader in the body of Christ. The fact that we know that it's going to happen 
And we're not going to let it disrupt our connection with the family of God or our connection with God does not mean that, oh, well, since it's going to happen, well, I guess we just got to overlook it. No, we should not just overlook it. We should not tolerate this because the world needs to see better than this. The sheep of God, the flock of God deserves better than this. And we need to make sure that we expect leadership that reflects the goodness of God. Amen? God is the good shepherd, and he commissions his leaders to be shepherds of the flock, to care for the flock. And so Paul is saying, don't be wolves, be shepherds. Don't be people who are predators, be caregivers for the flock of God. Let's look at the fuller context of this. Acts 20, verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I have lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. What kind of news is it? Good news. Now I know that none of you, now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today, that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. In this little passage, maybe it's not so little, 10 verses or so, but we see at least three commitments. I want to focus on three major commitments that Paul expresses here. He expresses a commitment to truth. He expresses a commitment to the mission in spite of the hardships that were coming his way. And he expresses a commitment to demonstrating godly character, good character, the goodness of God. Let's first of all talk about his commitment to truth. You might have noticed that in both verses 20 and 27, he uses the same phrase, I have not hesitated. I have not hesitated to preach to you. I have not hesitated to teach you all that I am responsible to teach you. I haven't held back. I have shared the truth with you. It's so important that if we're going to reflect the goodness of God, we have a, an unshakable commitment to the truth of God. You know, we're, we're, not, we're not trying to, you know, just attract people from out in the world by some twisting of the truth. That's why Paul warns about those who will twist the truth in order to gain followers. We're not interested in that. We are firmly committed to the truth of Jesus Christ. We are not 
going to live lives, lives that are susceptible to lies. We are not going to perpetuate lies. We're not just going to reflect the lies of our culture. We are committed to the truth, the truth of God's word, the true principles of God's kingdom. Amen? Amen. Integrity matters when it comes to the word of God as well. And can I just say as a preacher, and this is one of the things I've learned in preaching training and something that I convey when I do a life group or any other kind of teaching of others about how to preach. Yes, you might not believe it, but I, I can teach a little bit about how to preach right, even if I don't always preach right myself. But I try to be committed to the truth, whether my preaching is great or not. One of the things that my preaching is committed to is to declare the truth of God's word. And if you cannot display integrity in your handling of the word of God, then chances are you will not display integrity in other areas of your life and ministry. That's where integrity in ministry begins, right handling of the word of God. Amen? Amen. I mean, if you have a preacher, if I myself preach to you a message that twists and abuses the word of God, don't trust that preacher in any other area either. Amen? Amen. No, not every preacher has the same level of training and all that, but every preacher, however little training they have had, can stay faithful and true to the word of God as presented right here. Amen? Amen. I'm not saying you have to have an academic degree or approach to scripture, but we have to have a firm, unwavering commitment to the truth of scripture. Paul says this in Galatians 1.8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Paul said, even if I do something that deviates from the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, don't listen. It is cursed. So, you know, that's, that, that's something that's, that's very, very important for us. If we're going to reflect the goodness of God, we have to reflect the truth of God. Now, the goodness of God is not all about truth alone. Some of the meanest Christians I've ever met are committed to the truth. Just got to tell the truth, right? It, hey, Truth, just separated from a commitment to the goodness of God, can be harsh and anything but reflective of the character of God. So what do we need, what do we need in addition to a commitment to truth? Well, one thing that we see here, Paul has a commitment to the mission. In other words, he's not just committed to this idea of we're going to have this little holy huddle and we're going to have the truth and our group knows the truth and our church, our, our little group, our denomination, we, we've got the truth and we're just holding it for ourselves. We've got this little holy huddle of truth. No, God expects our lives to bear fruit. God expects his kingdom to be expanding. God expects people outside the family of God to be presented with his truth and with his love and with his goodness, with the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And we have to have not only an unwavering commitment to truth, but we need an unwavering commitment to the mission of letting that truth be known, letting the good news of Jesus be known. Paul says in verse 24, the last part of that verse, my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul, Paul's committed to the mission. He knows he's going to be persecuted. He's been persecuted in the past. He talks about that in this passage, and he knows the Holy Spirit is telling him, hey, Paul, there's prison and hardship awaiting you in the future as well. But Paul says, I'm committed to this. I'm committed to the mission. And I want to ask you, as a church, as people committed to displaying the goodness of God to the world around you, are you on God's mission? Because you all have a mission. You all have a mission. You all have a commission from the Lord. Paul had a mission even before he came to know Jesus. The only thing, it wasn't God's mission. And folks, if we don't have God's mission, we'll have a mission. We'll have a purpose. Even if our purpose is only to live a life of self-indulgence, we'll, have, we'll make up a mission for ourselves. Do you have God's mission? And when, when Paul, you know, who was on a mission to destroy the church, met Jesus, he became one who was committed to building up the church. He became committed to God's mission. So we need a commitment to truth and a commitment to mission. Can I just say that, you know, as with a commitment to truth and only truth, we can become just mean Christians? When we become committed to mission and only mission, we can become overbearing Christians. We can become even mean Christians in the sense that we'll use people and we'll trample on people to fulfill the mission. You know, and a, a lot of us in my position, in pastoral roles, in local churches throughout the country, it's so tempting to want to use people to fulfill our mission. And man, we, we, we need something more. We need something more than just a commitment to truth and mission. Or we'll get off track. We, we will maybe not become abusive, but we will be precariously close to being abusive leaders if we're just committed to truth and mission. As solid as the truth is, and as important as vital as the mission is, we need something more. And that's the third thing that Paul represents here. And actually, he spends more time on than any other of these topics. And his last words to these elders, the last thing that he can say to them as he basically hands the church off to them, and that is a commitment to character, to character. And, and, and first of all, he, about his character, about his mission, about the truth, he can say in verse 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me. Because see, real character starts from the premise that it's not about me. It's not about us. My preaching professor at Oral Roberts University, Dr. Larry LaCour, he said that the church does not exist to give you a place to preach. You gotta care for the church. You know, and I would say that of any leader in the family of God, 
The church does not exist to give you a platform for your leadership. It doesn't, doesn't exist to give you a platform for your spiritual gifts. It's not about us. <laughs> I, I have a person in my life, I consider my pastor. He's a Hawaiian pastor, Kahu Billy Mitchell. And I was talking to him the other day. And uh, we, were, we were talking about ministry. He just really speaks into my life. And he says, you know that book by Rick Warren, Purpose Driven Life? He said, I hate that book. Just, he said, just from, from the beginning of the book, I hate it. And I, I happened to have the first sentence of Rick Warren's book memorized. I've had it memorized for the last 15 to 20 years, however long that book's been around. You know what the first sentence of the book is? And I said it to, to Kahu, Billy. I said, it's not about you. And Kahu, Billy said, yeah, yeah, I hate it. He said, because you know, Ed, it is all about me. Now he was just joking, totally joking. But, but sometimes it's easy to feel like it's all about me. But Rick Warren is correct. It's not about you. That was a good way for Kahu Billy to make a point, wasn't it? <laughs> I hate it. Why? Because, I, 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 it, it, yeah, it, in my heart, in my life, sometimes it, it could just become all about me. You remember the book Blue Like Jazz? Some of you might have read that, where he says, we're all the stars of our own movie. <laughs> we just make it about us, but it's not about you. And if we can get that into our hearts and our lives, memorize that and get it from just our head to our hearts, we're on the way as members of the family of God, especially as leaders in the family of God, to really being the shepherds that God's called us to be, to display the character that God has called us to display. Let's look at the next little bit of this farewell address to the Ephesian elders, beginning with verse 28. And by the way, Paul's more concerned about their character, who they are as shepherds, even than he is about their mission. It's not that their mission is unimportant. It's worth laying down their lives for. But you, gotta, you have to do so with the character of Jesus, the character of God. And so he says in verse 28, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number will arise... Men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Two things to watch over. Watch over yourselves. Watch over yourselves. Can I just say that? Family of God, if you're a leader especially, watch over yourself. You can never get to a point where you think that you've arrived and this is no longer a concern. No, watch yourself. In fact, the longer you're in ministry and the more fruitful you have been, the more success you have achieved, the more concerned you ought to be to watch yourself. 
Watch yourself. What are some of the things that we have to watch out for? Three things that, you know, for ages have been talked about as things that leaders must watch for, and that is an abuse of money, sex, and power. Money, sex, and power. I heard it another way, not very politically correct perhaps, but you know, you got to watch out for the girls, the gold, and the glory. And when I said that before, somebody said, well, you're blaming the girls. No, I'm just saying that most pastors in the church world are men, and we're talking about abusing a situation, abusing girls, abusing women in the church. So no, no, no blame for any girls there, but you can remember that men watch out for your sexual relationships, your sexual purity, your relationship with things, material things and money and your relationship with power. And, and you know, there's no amount of mentoring that can keep you from being abusive in those areas if you decide not to watch yourself. I, I hear all the time, oh, well, they lacked accountability. Well, the thing that's really going to help them is, you know, to be in an accountability relationship. Well, you can just bluff your way through a, an accountability relationship if you want to. You, you've got to watch yourself. Accountability is good. Talking to somebody about your struggles is good. But you have to decide to watch yourself. These people had the apostle Paul for three years, and still Paul says some of you are going to become like these savage wolves. You're going to abuse power. Watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. And I read this statistic in, in reviewing some of the, the realities of money, sex, and power abuse in the church world. 12% of pastors in a fairly recent survey admit to having improper sexual relationships within their congregations. 12%. You might say, well, it's only 12. 12% is, to me, an incredibly high number. I just can hardly believe it. And that's the people who admitted it in a survey. My goodness, folks, watch yourselves. And just know if that's true, 12% of pastors, you, you can't be a deacon or a life group leader or anything, anything along those lines and rise to a level where you're no longer subject to temptations. Watch yourself. You scared? A little bit? Should be. <laughs> just, you, should be you shouldn't be scared in the sense of, you know, really afraid that somebody's going to whack you. You, 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 should, you should be afraid that you're going to give in to your own fleshly nature. All right? Stay on. Watch yourself. And then he says, watch over the flock. Remember that you are shepherds of the flock that Jesus bought with his own blood. You know, in other words, it's not your flock. They're, they're not something, the, the sheep are not something given to you for you to fleece. <laughs> They're not given to you to satisfy your selfish desires in the areas of money, sex, and power. If you see sheep coming towards you and dollar signs start flashing, or you start thinking about satisfying your own flesh, or you start seeing them as a stepping 
stone or a ladder to a higher position for yourself, you're missing the mark. And let me tell you, when, when we're missing the mark, do you realize that you know, when you're given a trust of a flock of sheep that have been bought with Jesus' blood, and then you abuse those sheep, you're coming against the blood of Jesus. <laughs> Not even the devil can stand against the blood of Jesus. I, 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 I don't want to tangle with the blood of Jesus that way. Amen? Amen. So Paul points the elders of the Ephesian church back to his own example. He can say, look at me. Paul's had a high level of leadership, but he's been faithful. Thank God for faithful leaders. Thank God that the majority of leaders, I think, in the family of God, the majority of pastors, the majority of leaders within the local church are people who truly want to serve and honor Jesus and want to care for Jesus' flock. So he says in verse 31, be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It's not, not just Paul's discipleship program that's going to save them. It's God and the word of his grace. Verse 33, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And what that summarizes as, not a prohibition of teachers receiving uh, a salary, Elsewhere, Paul says, those who teach the word should make their living by the word of God. You should give a wage to people who are in full-time ministry. That's a good thing. Paul supports it elsewhere. But he's saying the heart of a leader has to be the heart of a giver. A heart of a giver. You know, if you're in ministry and you're not tithing and you're not giving and you're not giving back to the flock, you're not giving of yourself to people, you're not laying down your life in some respects for the people of God, then you're a taker. And that's not reflective of the kind of example and character that Paul has, has shown them. Yeah, I mentioned money, sex, and power, right? In verse 30, he talked about power abuse when he says people will twist the truth to draw disciples to himself. Guess what? He doesn't say too much about sex in this passage. In fact, he doesn't say anything about it. Does that mean it's not a concern? No, no, you, you look elsewhere in Paul's writings, and he says a whole lot about sexual immorality, a lot, a whole lot. And uh, I think it's very appropriate for us to remember that things we talked about, and let's be clear, sexual assault, sexual purity for leaders, sexual trauma, all those things, any kind of abuse like that, that is perpetrated on the flock by people who ought to be shepherds of the flock, we ought not tolerate in any regard. Amen? Amen. My personal belief is that if a pastor has been sexually immoral, he has abused his power and used someone in the flock for sexual gratification, 
whether it was consensual or not, let me tell you, that person should, they should be restored to the family of God, but they shouldn't be restored to pastoral leadership. You shouldn't expect that. That's, that's, that's what I think. But here, you know what Paul spends more time talking about? Coveting stuff. Co- using God's people for self-enrichment. Again, nothing wrong with salaries. In fact, I think one of the best things you can do to keep your leaders from being tempted in this area is to pay good salaries. <laughs> you know, that's a good thing. Not exorbitant, not, you know, beyond what would be the norm for churches in America and whatever you know, the other elements that go in determining salaries for pastors and staff. But we need to make sure that if we're a worker in the body of Christ, that we're givers, that we're not takers, and that we don't see the body of Christ and work in the body of Christ as a mean for Gain. Paul talks about coveting. By the way, can I, can I just say this? I have absolutely no qualms about asking you to tithe, to give 10% of your income to the church. I have no qualms about asking you to give over and above for the mission of the church. And I have no qualms about giving to those things myself. Because it's not a, that's, those things are not about me. Amen? But coveting on the part of pastors and leaders, it's a whole different story. What is coveting? Coveting is, is desiring, lusting after something that doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to you. And sheep do not exist for us to fleece. In spite of all that, you know, nice wool. <laughs> you know, that's a metaphor that doesn't go that far. They're not for us to fleece. That, that's why in, in mine and Lisa's life and ministry, we have made it our principle never to do anything to enrich ourselves by manipulating the sheep. You know, we've had people try to, oh, you ought to sell Amway years ago. Or you ought to do Pampered Chef. You ought to host a premier jewelry party. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. If you've done all those things, man, great, fine. But what we refuse to do is to use our position in the body of Christ to get money for ourselves. Oh, yeah, you've got a lot of people that you can influence and you can make a lot of money with Amway and all these other things. Nope. Sorry. Not going to do it. Just not going to do it. This is a sacred trust. And it's not about getting something from people. Amen? Amen. Man, years ago, long time ago, you can't even guess, you can't figure out who this was. Long time ago. I've been here 30-something years. So long time ago, we had a youth pastor who divided up the youth group into teams. And they could get points by doing good deeds in the community and for people. And, you know, the team that got the most points was going to get some great prize. And I found out that 
a team raked his yard, and for raking the yard, they got way big bunches of points. Can I just tell you, I was upset by that. You might say, oh, it's just points. No. When when you manipulate the family of God for your own benefit, you're, you're in trouble. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't look at the sheep as any kind of opportunity to enrich yourself. And can I just tell you, if, if a pastor comes to you wanting to sell you something or engage in some kind of business with you, can I just say, run? And if that happens in Victory Church, let me know. Let me know, okay? Would you do that? Let me know. Maybe their motives are right. Maybe the opportunity they are presenting is okay, but I can tell you this, they're getting dangerously close to being in a position of using the sheep for their own enrichment. Not going to do it. So Paul's warning the church. Notice this about Paul's warning, verse 31. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day. How? With tears. With tears. I, I have more to say on this, but can I just say, sometimes we preachers, we can delight in warning people completely without tears. I'm, especially as a young pastor, I remember thinking, well, you know, so-and-so, they're causing trouble in the church, or they're way off base, or they got this thing going on, and I would plan a sermon. I'm going to get it, man. And I, I can tell you, I had in mind, you know, correcting the problem, and it probably really was a problem that needed to be corrected, but, you know, I, I probably didn't prepare that message with tears. In fact, I probably had a little bit of relish in how that person was going to squirm when I preached the word at them. And you know, the the bad thing is, I I could be planning that sermon for somebody who attends church 51 Sundays out of the year, and on the Sunday I had that sermon ready for them, they weren't going to be there every time. And, And... Really, there was a point in my ministry, I was so mission-minded and so wanting to see the people move forward that, that I, I, I actually got a little bit angry. When God was pouring out a spirit, there were, was revival taking place, and yet people were, were seemingly complacent, like, come on, people. And, and somebody even said, you know, Ed wasn't a person who attended our church, but they, they visited once and said, Ed, you know, when you preach, you sound mad. I'm thinking, oh, maybe I am mad. But that's not godly character. Thank goodness I, I got rid of that a long time ago. Yeah, I haven't preached mad in years, decades. But I'm telling you, some, some, some of us, we as Christians, we're committed to the truth. And some, some Christians, you meet them in person, they're the sweetest, nicest people but you get them online engaging with people who believe a little bit differently about something and maybe it's something significant, man, all of a sudden these nice, sweet people just begin boiling over with rage and anger and it just comes out. Folks, you know, if we really want to influence the world and demonstrate the goodness of God, can we ask God to give us a broken heart for the world and, and, and how messed up it is because, you know, 
Maybe anger every once in a while is God-directed, but most often it's not. You look at Scripture, most often it's not. And human anger doesn't accomplish anything. But a broken heart will. A broken heart for a broken world. Man, I think that's what God wants the world to see through you and me, through his people. Three things that Paul's committed to here, truth, mission, and character. And character is demonstrated through love of God's people, love of the flock more than anything else. Our church's mission is this, to welcome our world into an experience of God and the care of his family. How's that going for us? I hope it's going well. And I think if you just look at what God's doing at Victory Church and the people he's adding to the church, people are seeing something good. And they're saying it in you. Let's keep it up. How did that turn out for Paul in Ephesus? Last little bit of Acts 20. When Paul, this is verse 36, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. That's a pretty good ending to Paul's ministry at Ephesus, isn't it? That's a pretty good way to wrap up. Let's do what we can to finish well. I'm 65. This, I'm a year older than the last time you saw me. <laughs> I want to finish well. Right now, I'm not sure any of you would cry if I left, but now you know <laughs> I, I think we, we, should, we should really desire God's character to the point where, man, we truly love and miss each other. And I, I think the world's going to be attracted to that. It's safe to say that through Paul's ministry, the people tasted the goodness of God. They tasted the goodness of God. In my prayer is that when people look upon us, that they will see the goodness of God. They'll taste it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence with us and in us and through us. Thank you, Lord, for your love for each one of us. Father, draw hearts to yourself through your goodness. In Jesus' name, let me speak to you just for a moment. If you're, keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If you're watching this online, if you're here in this room right now, you've never received the goodness of God. You've never allowed the, the, the good father that God is to embrace you and welcome you as a son or daughter. Today's the day. Would you say yes? Repeat this prayer after me. Make it a prayer from your own heart and receive Christ and you'll never be the same. Just say these words, Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. I believe Jesus died. He was raised from the dead, and he is Lord. Forgive me of all my sins and be the Lord of my life. Help me reflect your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.